The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. We are quite good at adversarial politics in the House mm. of Commons. You know, you sit opposite each other, you shout at each other and everything else, um, which is why it is so fundamentally unsuited to solving the current problem we've got in front of us. Yes. <laughs> I think a lot of people can see that now. Yes, uh, yes uh, we demonstrated right that to, to a very full extent. Hello, my name is Kevin Poulter and I'm joined today by Nikki Morgan, MP. We're sat in Nikki's office in the Houses of Parliament and, as you might expect, it's slightly different to Dominic Greaves if you were listening last time around. What's interesting is Nikki's experience as a corporate lawyer and how that's actually influenced her life on the front bench of politics, but also now on the back benches, with her interests around gender, around diversity and in education. The Hearing Nikki, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. And, well, for us joining you uh, in, in Porkless House, uh, in, in a very nice office. Um, and I'm not commenting on Dominic Greaves, as, as we, but this is very pleasant, uh, very modern. I think it's more modern than Dominic's, modern. yes. Modern, that's a nice, nice way of putting it. It was also very homely. Um, uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, well, mostly actually, about your legal career yep. and that transition into politics. But first of all, just tell us a bit about your background and, and how you came to the law. So uh, I grew up in southwest London and uh, ended up studying law at Oxford University or jurisprudence as it was called uh, right. then. So my father is a barrister or was a barrister, ah, a criminal barrister. Okay. And um, so I guess the law was always kind of there in the background. Mm. But he was very clear that I should be a barrister, that I should be a solicitor on the basis that uh, solicitor is employed and you've got the firm behind you. It's and good um, and I think now it's fair that he's a criminal barrister and, and the criminal bar is pretty crowded now, yes. actually. And uh, so I did law um, and went off and did my articles at Theodore Goddard and then qualified okay. into corporate finance. So Theodore Goddard mm. then became Adel Schultz. That's right. For yeah. people who are not familiar, as, as, um, as being around as long as I Yes, am. yes, that's true. <laughs> yes, that's quite a while ago now. Um, and then I did uh, a few years at Allen Overy and ended up at Travers Smith, or it was Travers Smith Braithwaite, yes. and then the yeah. Bra- Mr. Braithwaite got dropped. Uh, let's, let's not go into that uh, too, too deeply. And you mentioned that you, the law was around in the background. Yeah. But was your father around in the background as well? Or being a barrister, was he at home a lot or was he off and away? Did you... No, it wasn't away because he ended up doing, I mean, I think, you know, very much criminal bar, you know, day, mm-hmm. what, day case, long cases. But, you know, it was, it was always around uh, in the evenings. Um, and um, But also always working in the evenings because you're always, you know, you're in court all day. You go and get the papers either for the next day or you're working on, you know, the next day's mm. uh, legal arguments. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, it was always kind of come home, um, you know, family supper and then and then on with work. So certainly not put off a legal career. No, no, no. Um, but, but the politics, uh, was there a political background at home as well? Yeah, so my father was also a counsellor. And oh. uh, so when I was quite small and then it stood again. And I think he could see, I and mean, I think there was a huge correlation between law and politics. Mm. I think much of the same skill set is needed. And uh, I think, uh, you know, I was always interested in current affairs and what mm. was going on and debating. And mm. so he could see that. So again, uh, you know, sort of encouraged me to be uh, you know, interested and involved in, in politics eventually, yeah. uh, which is why I found my niche. Yes, well, well so the, the work that you were doing um, at A&O, mm. at, at uh, Goddard, and then at Travis Smith, mm. what sort of work was it? Um, so I uh, specialise in mergers and acquisitions, so uh, particularly uh, takeovers, uh, IPOs, mm. um, raising funds on you know, different markets. Um, and um, I mean, interestingly now, 
now, given what's going on in Parliament, I spend in my last job at Travers a lot of time advising clients on the implementation of the Prospectus Directive, mm. the Market Abuse Directive, the Takeovers Directive. Um, and um, of course, we're seeing a lot of that now being unravelled. Well, true, true. Um, but not so much around the social consciousness uh, in, in uh, mergers and acquisitions mm. uh, in something of the corporate world. Uh, did, how did you sort of stay in touch with that, if that's, one, again, one of your interests? Uh, what with mergers and acquisitions? Well, or? just just in your, on your through your life. Um, if you're not getting the sort of satisfaction of being involved at the sort of the coal face uh, with people, um, uh, rather than the, sort of the numbers and the figures. Well, but the, you see, that's the thing about it. I mean, actually, I remember this. I had a constituent who said to me, "Oh, you used to deal with businesses. How terrible!" I said, "Well, businesses are made up of people, yeah. and so you're always dealing with 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 people, whether it's clients or other mm. lawyers." Or, of course, a lot of M&A, you know, you're dealing with the buying and selling of, of businesses, which, again, are mm. employers and, you know, and so you've got to go into people's businesses and understand how they work, what makes them tick, who's employed, what they need to do, if they're being bought or they're being sold. Mm. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it's not just about the numbers. I mean, the good thing, in a way, is the lawyers don't really get um, so involved in the numbers. You know, you're, you've got other um, professionals, the accountants, the bankers and others to do a lot mm. of that. Uh, whereas you're trying to bring people together and to negotiate and get people to agree things and actually that's basically what you do as an MP. Yeah, as an employment lawyer, um, my experience of corporate lawyers is mm. tends to be different to yours, um, but, but, that's, but, you, but you're absolutely right. And uh, talking about that transition and the, the shared skills, mm. being an MP is not just a, sort of a one skill job, should no, no, say. No, absolutely um, not. So, so how do those different things cut across? Because it's, I say, it's, it's, it is about that, if you like, client contact, mm. um, speaking to, I guess, the constituents. Yep. But then also about looking after the firm, uh, in inverted commas, uh, back to the debating, back to that mm. sort of fighting the corner, uh, your own corner on that on behalf of your, again, clients. Mm. Uh, how, how did that transition happen for you? How well, so I was always involved in politics. I joined my party when I was 16. So I was involved right the way through university, uh, right the way through my obviously articles, working mm. in London, all the rest of it. Um, and first of Parliament, I was in 2001, when I was working for Alan Overy, um, and then was selected for Loughborough in 2004, and I was working for Travers, and then one in 2010. Mm. Um, and Travers were brilliant about being very, very supportive about, you know, when I was a, a candidate and, and everything else. And But I think the basic thing is, as a lawyer, that's exactly right, you're an advocate, mm. you know, for, for, for clients and, and obviously in, you know, perhaps representing the firm in various places. Mm. And that's exactly what you are as a member of parliament. You are an advocate for your constituents. Mm. And so, um, I, you know, I find that actually the legal skills that I picked up up. Um, you know, forget being a minister for a moment, but just being a member of parliament, you have to process a lot of information very quickly. Mm. You know, I have surgery appointments that are 15 minutes long. Um, when I was uh, a trainee solicitor, I helped out at, um, you know, a lot of the big firms help at the pro bono the law clinics. Class, yeah. So again, you know, same skill. Somebody comes in, mm. they're not expert, they're looking for help. That's mm. exactly what's the same with, with being a constituency MP. They're coming in, they're looking for help. They don't quite know, you know, which way to turn. So you've got to process that and work out what well, we're going to contact contact this agency and contact that. So the skill set is 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 remarkably similar. And then of course, you know, your role in Westminster is yeah. scrutinising the law. Yeah. So so um, well scrutinising the law, but also mm. again you've always said fighting yeah. on behalf of your constituents and raising their issues Absolutely. in a very public forum. Yeah. Um, and, and and one where you're surrounded by uh, like minded people who might have or, or shall I say not like minded people sometimes uh, yeah. and, and undoubtedly frequently. Um, but how how do you deal with that? Because you don't often have that battle with uh, with a client. Um, you have that battle with in litigation, typically, yeah. not so much again with the 
on the corporate side of things. Ah, but you do with the other. You do with the other other lawyers. You see. So, um, you know, a lot of the time as a, as a corporate lawyer, you are, of course, liaising with the other side. And, you know, you're trying to persuade them, you're negotiating. Mm-hmm. You know, you spend a lot of time negotiating long agreements. Um, you know, we'll have, have this clause. Um, a bit of give and take, uh, which is what we don't see a huge amount of in politics at the moment. Uh, but actually, a lot of compromise. And then persuading yes. the client that actually, uh, you know, I know this isn't quite what you wanted, mm-hmm. but, you know, if you give them this, then you can get that, and then you get your deal done, or your business sold, or, or whatever it, you know, it might be. And um, and so I think that you're not always, I mean, obviously, um, in a legal context, you're dealing with sort of fellow professionals, mm. um, and, and you are as members of parliament, but you are, you're, you're often dealing with people, particularly on different sides of the House of Commons, who come at things from a very different ideological perspective from mm. you. But I think as long as you understand that in a, you know, lawyer's case, it's they've got different client instructions. Yes. And in an MP's case, you know, they just have got a different view on life. I mean, most MPs, you want to get to the same place, which is mm. you want to make life better for your constituents. Mm. But but people have different ways of, of, of judging that and, and, and achieving that. Mm. And what, what we don't have so much in law, of course, is the democratic process. That's very true. And, and how how is that different? Because that's balancing, again, not, not just mm. your clients, but also the party uh, yeah, yeah. policy. And your own probably personal views mm. as well in what is best for either your constituency or indeed on a wider scale, the country, yeah, yeah. or even on a larger scale, again, sort of the human rights issues, mm. the pervasive issues. How do you personally um, sort of manage those sort of micro conflicts or sometimes maybe uh, major conflicts? Well, they can be major conflicts. And I think, you know, again, particularly uh, given what's happening at the moment. Mm. Um, and I, I so obviously as, as chair of the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee, yes. I spend a lot of time speaking to business audiences. You know, obviously, particularly Brexit comes up a lot at the moment. And I think it'd be fair to say a lot of business audiences, um, firstly, obviously, they're, they're deeply frustrated. But putting aside business issues, mm. they um, can't really understand why politicians are, you know, behaving where they are. And you explain about the accountability to the electorate. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's, I was talking about this, fun enough, 2A barrister this morning, we were talking about mediation. I said, mm. but the issue is that a lot of MPs are not acting on their own behalf. Mm. They are acting on the representatives of their constituents. Yeah. And they're getting a very clear instruction um, from one set of constituents, mm. which is completely countermanded by an irreconcilable instruction from another yes, set of constituents. Um, now, obviously, some areas were, were much more, you know, leave, remain or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, and again, it's a bit like if you're trying as a solicitor to deal perhaps with a couple of clients you know, who are ostensibly on the same side, might even be potentially in partnership wanting to buy or sell a business together. Yeah. But you've got slightly different instructions. Yes. How do you how do you balance that? Yeah. And uh, but I think it's there's no doubt business audiences, um, many of whom have obviously perfectly sound reasons, never had to stand on a doorstep mm. um, and say, actually, this is what's going on or this is why, you know, I, I voted mm. in this particular way. I think the only way it's a slightly parallel, I guess, is for your listed companies who mm. are accountable to shareholders. Yes. And there, I think people do, you know, begin to understand. Although, of course, shareholders these days, it's very different. Often it's big institutions, mm. not your, you know, old-fashioned AGM where you've got hundreds of individual little shareholders turning up. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you mentioned being on the doorsteps as well. And you're right, that accountability uh, aspect. So there is no insurance policy in the background. No. Nope. Um, it's, it's, and it's often down to you. It's your face. Mm, absolutely. Uh, it's your name um, out there. And... Uh, so we've talked to a few MPs before, some of whom are, let's say, not as favourable about social media. But you're you're an active user <laughs> yeah, of yeah, social yeah. media, and 
Um, that's taking the that's putting yourself on a lot of doorsteps. Yeah. How how do you go about dealing and again reconciling that your your public face with the, the, those personal views and that personal life as well? Well, so I think um, most of us now are very careful not to talk much about personal life on mm. social media um, because I think the trouble is if you put your, your, your personal life on there, then that becomes fair game for, for people. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think everybody needs a bit of life, which is not for public uh, consumption. Mm. But I think, you know, a lot of my social media, I mean, yes, there'll be national political comment, but a lot of local stuff as well. Uh, and, um, you know, I think the other thing, unfortunately, is the online world has become much more abusive, much more threatening. Yes. Um, and so you end up, um, you, you know, in some ways, social media is great for sort of shortening the lines of communication between MP and constituent. But I found myself missing constituency comments because you're so busy wading through all the other stuff that's on yes, there. Yeah. So then people stop reading the notifications. Mm. So I kind of wonder whether the social media thing eventually is just going to exactly is going to burn yeah. itself out. Yeah, quite interesting. And and you you social media again. You mentioned the the the, the more abusive comments that are coming mm. out of that. You were in the cabinet. You were dealing with both two incredibly important issues: education, yep. but also women and equalities. Yep. Uh, both areas where social media, uh, yeah. uh, amongst many other things, absolutely is is again pervasive mm. and causing a lot of problems. Um, how 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 big an issue was it? Because we're going back a few years, not too yeah. far. No, three, um, coming up to three years. Yeah, but social media has really evolved quite yeah. quickly, even during that short short period. Um, but how how you, how do you how did you deal with it then? And in those sectors, how do you see it sort of progressing? Mm. So I do think that social media, um, you know, unfortunately, the political events of the last couple of years mm. has really changed the nature of mm. social media. I think people, um, certainly in my experience, are, um, as I say, are, are more abusive. Um, and, you know, the language of betrayal mm. and treason and traitors mm. has crept in in a way that I don't think anyone's ever seen before. Mm. Um, so obviously, you know, when I was Education Secretary and Minister of Women Equalities, I would get, particularly as Education Secretary, you know, some very passionate people, yeah. passionate about their job as teachers, passionate mm. as parents or governors, pupils, um, who want to, to comment. But it's also quite useful. So one of the things I found out about was an issue about SATs tests. Mm. And I found that out from my Twitter account yeah. um, before the officer told me. And I <laughs> phoned you know, the officer and said, I've just seen this on Twitter. What's going on? Mm. Um, and so that's when, you know, the social media can be really useful. Instant contact, instant comment. Mm. Um, so you're right. And of course, it's an issue for schools. Um, and I think for young people's mental health, mm. which, you know, um, social media. Yeah. Uh, it's an issue for teachers. I mean, I know the fact that schools have to appeal for people not to say things on Facebook. Facebook mm. uh, about teachers and schools that they would never say face to face but then of course women equalities as well I, I mean you know we see unfortunately um, more abuse directed towards female participants in social media yes. um, and you know they're still you know you can see misogynistic and mm. um, homophobic um, you know racist comments mm. on social media um, that I hope that we would you know, never see, almost mm. you know, never see, on a face-to-face human-level contact. So in, in your role uh, as an MP and as a legislature, mm. um, the, what can be done about this? Because I know Facebook now is sort of dem- almost inviting regulation. Yeah. Um, are we looking at regulation? Are we looking at something which is sort of slightly more bold than regulation, perhaps? How do you see that evolving? Um, I think it's... I mean, there clearly is going to be regulation. And I think that the uh, social media platforms really need to realise... I think they are realising now they are publishers, not platforms. Mm. Uh, they have a duty of care to their users. 
um, and they have got better, but they're still not good enough about taking content down. Mm. So the awful massacre in Christchurch recently, I mean, the mm. fact that firstly the guy could broadcast it live, yeah. and then the fact that it um, didn't get taken down quickly was just appalling and, mm. and absolutely inexcusable. Um, so, but regulation goes so far. So one of the other things I did when I was uh, education secretary was I, you know, did a lot of work on character. And uh, the, what we're teaching our young people about things like disagreeing well, about being resilient, about being active citizens, mm. about being aware of our place in the in the world and all the rest of it. I mean, mm. you know, I'm sure actually, funny enough, young people are probably more respectful on some of these platforms. Um, my abuse is not coming from young people. Yeah. It is coming from older, very angry individuals. Yes. And I think there has to be a bit of a national probably international conversation mm. about, you know what, actually regulation going to go so far, the platforms can do so much, mm. but you guys are the one who are posting this stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, actually we all have a responsibility. Mm. And look, the police um, this morning of this interview have just issued guidance to say to you know, politicians and others, think about the language you're using yes. in this Brexit debate at the moment, because the language that you think might be, you know, get you a headline, mm. is inflaming somebody else mm. to act Potentially criminally, yes, uh, towards somebody else, yeah, and, and violently, um, absolutely, uh, in, sadly, in, in, yes, increasingly so, um, uh, yeah, and and well, you, you've already again mentioned the work that you were doing back then, and I think often as a minister, the the challenge usually I imagine is staying out of the press, and I think that you were generally <laughs> yes. successful at doing that, and like you, you take on a like education is uh, you only hear about uh, some of the front pages, mm. the bad things, yeah, you don't hear about sadly, things that are going yes. well. And you mentioned the resilience, you mentioned mental health as well. And I yeah. know that these are topics that you're particularly uh, keen to, to progress. Mm. Um, how, how do you see that conversation happening? And how have current uh, issues sort of impacted on yeah. that? Yeah, well, I think... Um it would be lovely to talk more about them. Mm. And I wrote a book after I'd left um, office yeah. on character education, and I'd love to do more on that. Um, I think the whole issue about the kind of the national psyche, about wanting the country to and people in the country to flourish is really important. And unfortunately, I think that Brexit's having a really damaging effect on our national psyche. Mm. And uh, you can see that people are, um, you know, quite up and down mm. according to the media coverage and they want this to be sorted um, and uh, you know I remember coming down the, the morning of the first meaningful vote in January um, and I was on the train down from uh, my constituency mm. and as I got off um, in a typically British way of course nobody said anything when I was the journey was going on but right towards the end as we got to London five people also came up and said good luck today hope it goes well and the rest of it and you think actually people are really invested in this yes and so the uncertainty is damaging in all sorts of ways mm. and um, and that's why I think we need to try to have a resolution to this try to heal mm. some some divisions um, and I think you know mental health I think it's difficult I think people involved in, in Brexit MPs press civil servants are finding actually they're having to really draw on reserves of resilience mm. let alone the poor prime minister that they you know probably haven't had to tap for a long time um and uh i also think as i say i think there's a level of residual anger in mm. this country and elsewhere but in this country that i think many of us haven't really encountered before mm. now whether that's the pace of modern life the volume information you know people feeling that life is very unfair i don't know what it is mm. but there's there's a there's a big job for government to do there and again it's quite a difficult thing for government to do on its own. Mm. Um, so you can't regulate your way into people feeling happier. No, that's right. And and almost we've got to be careful about what we wish for because <laughs> it wasn't long ago we were complaining that people were so disenfranchised with politics mm. that they weren't coming out to vote. And yet now, 
I can imagine that next time around we're going to have probably a lot sort of a huge numbers yeah. that probably greater than I've ever seen before. Um, because of that, well, or, or, the, or the opposite. There's no doubt young people are more engaged in politics than they've probably ever been. Yes. You know, when I go and speak to schools and colleges, people are really actively interested in politics. I think a lot of young people have learned a lesson, which is don't ever not vote. And I always say, particularly to the girls in every audience, you know, make sure you're voting because mm. women died to make sure that you yeah. can have the right to, to vote. Um, and um, so that's obviously a, it, it is a, it's a good thing. But you want people to, to vote for positive reasons because mm. actually they agree with somebody's agenda or they can see it's time for change and they think somebody else is going to manage the country, uh, the country better. And, um, you know, we've got a lot of work to do to restore, I think, faith in, in politics and politicians in this country. And you're right. That's a, that's a huge job for whoever may or may not be mm. taking over um, in due course. And there's been a lot of talk about a, sort of a national yeah. unity party. Um, uh, what what is, is not happened since the Second World War? Is it something which is feasible? Is it something which um, again will cross party divides? Mm. Um, are we seeing actually a more potentially a more unified parliament in due course? Uh, would that would that help or would that hinder? Well, I think um, one of the big. Um, mistakes has been trying to approach Brexit on a party political basis because mm-hmm. actually there were people in all parties who voted to remain and to, and to leave and so um, you know I, I was talking to somebody from another parliament and they said we would never approach them like this without there having been a you know a committee or a process to hammer out a consensus so when you got something like party withdrawal agreement you knew it was going to go through because everyone had invested or at least had had their say Mm. in I can't live with this I can't live with that or Mm. yeah okay I'll I'll, I'll compromise everything else I think if there were to be eventually a compromise or consensus arrived at through backbench uh, um, coming together that's where you might end up with a government of uh, or or some form of national unity body Mm. just to deliver this Mm. but I mean you're right it's not something we've had in this country I think the last time we obviously had the second world war but also handling the great depression yes you know when you've got an issue but we are in a you know a a crisis situation at the Mm. moment and I think going back to what I said earlier I do think the country is looking to people who are elected to get this solved Mm. um so you know if we need to think creatively and do something we haven't done for a long long time then we should think about it Mm. and I've got a few questions for you which Mm. is slightly moving away from that but um, just curiosities, really, on my <laughs> part, uh, which hopefully you can understand. I'm sure you can. Uh, when it comes to, to drafting legislation or even motions, which yes. we've seen a lot of, um, how involved are you as the MPs in, in that? And uh, again, how useful is your legal background? Because we've, we've heard yeah. a lot about bad drafting, um, but, but again, there's not an opportunity for a supervisor to come and check those things. No, exactly. There's nobody to mark your homework. So, um, <laughs> and obviously, there's a whole skill set of being a parliament, what's called a parliamentary draftsman. So they are the people who will draft, you know, government legislation. Yeah. Um, and so certainly as a, as a minister, for example, you might give an overall direction of what the bill is, but, you know, it'll be drafted by, by specialists. There's no doubt in scrutinising that legislation, being a lawyer is really, really helpful because, you know, you can understand why things are drafted in a certain way yeah. or, or whatever it might be. When we get to something where it's drafted by backbench MPs, mm. there are clerks of the House of Commons and, and lords as well um, who will help with the drafting. So you'll say, this is what I want to achieve. Um, you know, uh, can you help? And they'll help everybody. doesn't mm. matter what, what party you are. You know, as long as you're not a minister, yes. um, then uh, they, will, they are there to, to assist uh, because they want well-worded motions to be presented to the House of Commons and to be understandable. And, you know, because um, as lawyers will understand, uh, there's an awful lot about precedent in the House yeah. of Commons. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, and as we 
mean, we saw the other day, I think that there are various precedents which we're now using from the sort of 1600s mm. that John Burko is relying on. <laughs> yeah, so yes. A, they stood the test that. of time and, and B, you know, you want it to be a well-worded precedent, as it were. So you do get um, assistance uh, with, uh, with that. But of course, it doesn't mean that in haste, you're not mm. going to um, make uh, make mistakes. Mm. So um, obviously, as legislation goes through, a lot of it is drafting errors that are being corrected. Mm. And again, the second curious question is, when, when there's a split and mm. you go off and have the votes and you go through your... What actually happens? Because is there somebody with the clicker? Do you sign your name? How, how, so um, they have moved in the 21st century now. We do have... There are iPads. There's a lot of them nowadays. Yeah. So um, there are two two lobbies behind the, the government benches and the opposition benches. And the government is I, so yes, mm. and the opposition is, is no. And so depending on which way you're voting, your you know, MPs will file through. Yeah. And you literally, there are three desks and you're divided alphabetically and you will give your name to the Member of House of Commons staff who will either, you know, the paper-based way is just crossing your name off mm. or the iPad, they will obviously tick you off as having mm. been been through. And that's what happens most of the time. There is a paper-based voting system and we've just had another one for these indicative votes. Mm. Uh, the paper-based system is normally used for what we call deferred divisions for secondary legislation. Right. That usually happens on a Wednesday lunchtime. So mm. it's not an active, it's, it's a division, but it's not one where you're actually filing through the yeah. through the lobby. And because it's it's as it calls a division, mm. um, but but there's a sense of, sort of divisiveness there as well, having to yeah. cross over to the other side um, to to vote against the government yeah. or or for in some cases. Um, is that is that quite well? Just going back a bit, but your first time, yeah. is that quite an intimidating experience? Yeah, that- I mean, absolutely. Walking through a lobby with, without, you know, you're not doing it with your party colleagues, maybe mm. doing it with the opposition, mm. um, is not an easy process. And for most people, that's not why they come into, into politics. Mm. Um, there might be an issue people feel particularly strongly about, particularly if it's related to the constituency, uh, where they just know that they're not going to be able to support their, their party's position. Um, but yes, I mean, you know, you're being watched as well by your own party's yeah. whips to see, you yeah. know, who's coming out of the lobby, yeah. uh, particularly if it's a close vote, like the ones that we've seen uh, this week, they're mm. taking a very careful tally mm. of, um, you know, uh, who it is uh, and, and how they are uh, voting. Um, so, um, yes, you know, it's quite a, it is quite a process. So, so, so you might not get your homework marked, but there's certainly somebody, teachers there who are keeping yeah. an eye on what's happening. And, and you, you raised an interesting question about divisions, because I mean, that's one of the things that I think that's process. You know, we are quite good at adversarial politics in the House mm. of Commons. You know, you sit opposite each other, you shout each other and everything else. Um, which is why it is so fundamentally unsuited to solving the current problem we've got in front of us. Yes. <laughs> I think a lot of people can see that now. <laughs> yes, uh, yes uh, we demonstrated that, that to, to a very full extent. Uh, yeah, we're using a very good job of doing, doing such a good... Um, uh, so, uh, really, I guess, what, what next? Um, because, uh, not, not, not necessarily for the country, but for mm. you personally, that you've, you've been in the Cabinet, there's a lot of talk about you returning... I've heard talk about a potential, uh, well, very senior positions, to say, but uh, including Chancellor. Um, uh, how, how, how would you, like, is that something that you feel, do you ever feel qualified? Do you feel even qualified now to do the job that you're doing? <laughs> is there a sense of imposter syndrome <laughs> oh, yeah. sort of throughout everyone's uh, careers? Uh, of, of course. And, and, you know, I mean, I ended up in the Cabinet after just four years in the yeah, House of Commons. Well, and so certainly for the first well, I think months and months, you know, when someone is a Secretary of State, you kind of turn and look behind you and you think, oh, really? Who's that? Oh, me. Gosh, that's me. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, but, but the other good thing about it, and I think hopefully, you know, some people listening for the legal profession will recognise this. Mm. And I know that for some women, you know, being asked to apply for partnership or for senior positions, um, often they think, well, I, I, that's, I couldn't do that and all the rest of it. The, the good news in my case was that David Cameron gave me about 15 seconds to say yes or no. In fact, he just said, I want you to do this job. And um, being Secretary of State, 
for education. I went, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I think if it had been a sort of a, you must apply for this, mm. you know, you'd never get around to, to doing it. Whereas when somebody says, I think you can do this, you're doing it. Mm. So who knows what? I mean, I'm chair of one of the great select committees of the House yes. of Commons, the Treasury Select Committee. It is fascinating. It's an area for me. It's like going back to my days in the city. Yeah, I see well. lots of people that I've worked with there and, and, and everything else. And I think the exciting thing in a way um, about the politics, and obviously it's a bit too exciting at the moment, but um, normally is you just never quite know what's around the corner. Mm -hmm. You know, a a phone call or there's something there or, you know, an opportunity. Um, Who knows what beckons? Look, Mm -hmm. the country's never had a female chance of the Exchequer. Um, It's always, uh, you know, uh, good for all of us to break a few glass ceilings. Um, But whatever the challenge, you know, and actually even being an an MP, Every day you are presented yeah. with a case to which you do not know the mm. answer. Mm. Uh, so that does keep you very much on your toes. Mm. But does it also satisfy, satisfy your curiosity? Because yeah. I think that's just part of being a lawyer as well is you, you don't know what's going to happen the next right. day or even the same day. Um, that's what drives you forward. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I'm conscious because you are incredibly busy as we know and I'm going to let you go very, very shortly. Um, but how, do, like, obviously the Parliament's changed incredibly mm. over the last 10 years. Mm. Uh, we're seeing a much greater gender balance, much greater diversity. Yeah. Um, what do you think, again, those next 10 years will bring in terms of that diversity, that, that, that um, uh, both in terms of gender, because I know you're, again, mm. hugely supportive of the, the gender pay gap yeah. um, reporting uh, and other things. How do we think that might change? Wearing your sort of equalities hat once more. Well, I hope very much that we're going to have more women in Parliament. We need more uh, BME representation. Mm. Um, I think that we are one of the most gay-friendly parliaments in the world, but I'd have to go and look at the statistics on that. But look, we've got to look at the country that we aspire to represent. Mm. I mean, 2010, 2015, there was a huge generational shift. Um, And going back to what I said about rebuilding trust in politics and politicians, I mean, Mm. you need a breadth. I think what we've seen, actually, the last couple of years, is you you really need a breadth of experience. So you need young, very keen people who are going to be asking the questions. You say, got the intellectual sort of curiosity. Mm. But you do need people like Ken Clark and Harriet Harman and, Mm. you know, the wonderful Gary Streeter and um, Margaret Beckett and, you know, and and people who who have got those and they've been cabinet ministers Mm. um, or they've been around for for a very long time. They've seen Parliament doing some kind of crazy things in the past, and and uh, although all of them will say at the moment they've never seen anything like the current situation, mm. um, but you do need people to remind you that actually Parliament's been around for hundreds of years. We are just here for a brief span of time, yeah. in you know, and there's a there's a long Sometimes time it doesn't span. Feel like that, but no, yeah, a, we can feel like a very long time politics <laughs> at the moment, but. Uh, you, you know, and, and you know, these things will pass mm. and there will be a, a, a resolution of everything else. I mean, I hope that Parliament just carries on, as I say, looking more and more like the country we aspire to represent, that we do rebuild our trust. There's a huge issue about culture in Parliament. I mean, obviously, again, you know, too much attention on Europe at the moment, but things like the harassment issues, the Me Too campaign, you know, there's a lot of work. Yeah. Andrea Ledson, I know, is leader of the House, wants to do yeah. uh, in, in, in Parliament. Um, so, you know, we, we've that, there'll always That's be, um, absolutely, always be many challenges for our Parliament. Mm. And you mentioned a few, in that just summary there, a few uh, lawyers. There are a lot of lawyers in Parliament. I there think are. probably an over-representation. <laughs> Um, why is that? Well, I think because the skill set is so similar. Because I think um, once you have mastered uh, the art of, of, of getting to grips with the brief, 
representing a client, uh, standing up and talking. Um, then, you know, I remember my first day on a bill committee and I was talking to somebody who's not a lawyer. And he said, he said, how does this act of parliament work? He said, I, I have no idea. You know, clauses, yeah. schedules, what does it all mean? Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, you know, that's great. Very happy to explain it. But you do start yeah. mm-hmm. from a, uh, you know, a position. However, look, you need people. When I go and speak to schools, they say, what do you need to do to be an MP? Mm-hmm. And I say, you need life experience. Yeah. Actually, the more you've done in life, I think the better member of parliament that you are, not rushing when you're too young, not assuming you've got to have a particular yeah. background is really, really important. And, you know, um, I suspect there'll always be lots of lawyers in politics, mm. uh, but we need lots of other people too. Good. Thank you, Nikki. I'm going to let you go back thank to you. saving the country. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and good luck with that. Thank you um, very much. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. No, thank you. The Hearing. As ever, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us again and why not give us a rating or subscribe? That way you'll get an alert every time we release a new episode. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.